0: Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. I'm Neil Morrison of Crash.net and Road Racing World and with me is
1: David Emmett of motomatters.com
0: and today it's just the two of us David as Tony Goldsmith uh, who usually joins us is currently in transit on his way to Macau. Uh, So before we get started we hope you're following the show on Facebook that's facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast and Twitter. At Paddock Pass Pod, and if you happen to listen to us on iTunes, please be sure to leave a review and a rating, as it greatly helps other MotoGP fans find the show. So today, David, we're going to be discussing uh, what went on in the post uh, the post race test of Valencia. Um, I think it's safe to say that we were all uh, kind of at the end of uh, at the end of our tether by the end of Wednesday night when it was going on. Um, but we've had a few days to kind of dissect the information and kind of think think it through. Um, how was how was the Valencia test for you?
1: Well, to be frank, it was um, uh, it was nice to be talking about um, bikes again um, instead of uh, the politics behind. Uh, the 2015 season it was nice to put that behind us and just focus on the future again because it's a really really it's actually a really interesting and exciting future that's that, that, that that's ahead of us i mean we had uh, everyone trying the michelin tires we also got the first look at the uh at the 2016 uh, electronics uh at least with some of the riders there was uh i think uh certainly most of the factory riders were using the uh 2016 electronics um and the satellite riders and Suzuki and a couple of others were uh, were using the, the, the their old factory software, uh, so it was uh, it was interesting. It was also interesting interesting to see the amount of progress that they made from uh, from day one to to, to day two with the electronics. So uh, I think uh, there was definitely plenty uh, plenty to talk about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um- I, I was kind of casting my mind back and you could maybe say that this is kind of the biggest uh, technical change that's been going on um, over the winter since perhaps the uh, the premier classes um, since they turned to uh, four stroke machinery in 2002 um, yeah
1: but I, I, I'm uh, because I was thinking the same sort of thing what was the when was this the biggest change I think this is certainly the biggest change since uh, since 2007 and the switch to 800s uh, because that, that had a really massive a, a really massive effect. I'm not sure whether this will have a uh, such a massive effect, but um, it'll certainly be. It, it, it's obviously going to have an effect on on the championship and the way that the uh, and the way that it works out. But um, uh, I think also that it's going to be very difficult to draw any conclusions about you know the the 2016 MotoGP champion from two days of testing in Valencia uh, with everyone on taking their first run out on the bikes.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah, and it was it was quite quite tempting to draw some conclusions from from the timesheets at the end of wednesday uh there were some notable um you know some noteworthy performances there i mean like maverick finales was second alish aspargo was third um
1: yeah i mean clear clearly they get they got on really well with the uh with the michelin tires but then again it, the the suzukis were running their own software
0: exactly uh, exactly yeah yeah so sorry alish aspargo was actually fourth um but yeah, exactly. So it wasn't really quite the, the even playing field that um, that you would have, you know, you would you would perhaps think. Uh,
1: no, uh, what I what I also found interesting was that both Suzuki riders were looking at it more of a uh, as more of an advantage that they hadn't tried the uh, the spec software because they expected it to go better on the spec software than uh, than on their own software because their own software was something that they were very much um, uh, you know concerned about.
0: Yeah, exactly. They switched to Magneti Morelli software, of course, at the start of this year, um, or at the end of two thousand and thirteen. Um, they had been using, I think, Mitsubishi systems before that in their electronics. Yes, um, that's right. So, yeah, it wasn't uh, it wasn't. Qu- or they are kind of hoping that it won't be such a big step, um, you know, as it was for Honda, for example, who've never used um, Magneti Morelli before.
1: Yeah, I mean, what was interesting was that the Hondas actually seemed to get on better with the uh, with the electronics rather than the Yamahas, who've been using Magneti Morelli electronics since. Well, I don't know, probably probably since they dropped the carbs and and, and went to fuel injection, which I think was the second generation of the M one. In two thousand and three,
0: yeah, yeah. Although it was, it was definitely interesting um, to hear the comments on the second day um, because I think universally, everyone was quite negative. Scott Redding, um, on Tuesday. Uh, that was the, the two Repsol Honda guys and yeah. the two movie star Yamaha guys. Who were quite negative about the electronics, saying that it was like going back in time. Um, I think Rossi said it was like maybe, you know... Two what,
1: th- 2008,
0: 2009, he said. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, Where in the second day, you know, both the Honda guys were still complaining of, you know, massive inconsistency, unpredictability. Uh, whereas reading back uh, um, Lorenzo and Rossi's comments, they were kind of saying that they had made, you know, a lot of headway. Um, I think they just they they tested the electronics late into the day on Tuesday, and then worked with them all through Wednesday. And they said even in that one day, um, they found um, you know they found good good uh, more consistency uh, let's say
1: yeah well i, I think also it's it uh, it's also a bit of a mindset because you 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 come off some extremely sophisticated electronics and i, I certainly believe that the uh, the yamaha's electronic systems were much more complex than the or much more not complex is the wrong word sophisticated uh i think they were much more sophisticated than than honda systems so it was a if you like it was a much bigger step back for them but then after after a day you sort of accept that okay this is it this is what we have to deal with and you know you start looking forward instead of uh looking back and saying oh i wish i had my 2000 well yeah i wish i had my 2015 electronics again because you know tough luck. That's it. You 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 can want them as much as you like. You're just not going to get them. You just have to deal with what you get.
0: Yeah, exactly. You also have, you know, a, a stable of very, very, very talented um, technicians, uh, electronics engineers, um, you know, working for both Repsol Honda and Movie Star Yamaha. You kind of imagine that, you know, given another couple of tests um, by the time, you know, the bikes line up in Qatar, um, those technicians will have programmed the electronics into a kind of more manageable, predictable way um, that, okay, may not be the same level as they were using before, but, you know, are still at least predictable, you know, at least uh, to the level where riders know what they can expect going into a corner, coming out of a corner, going along a straight.
1: Exactly. I mean, I spoke to Corrado Cecchinelli, who's the director of technology for MotoGP.com, uh, or for well for daughter of MotoGP, and he said um, that they were only about uh, around ten percent of the of the capability of the uh, of the software, uh, simply because they didn't have all that much calibration uh, data, and it was a question of actually you know fine tuning, setting it up, going through the parameters, finding out what works best. I mean they've done a lot of this work on dynos, but the dyno is just never the same as as uh, as the track. Um, uh, so so So, you know, as they go through, they will get better and better. Um, And unfortunately, as I think Bradley Smith said, um, it's not going to – that is it's still going to favor the factories.
0: Exactly, yes. I think Bradley Smith said that, um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, Yamaha, the factory Yamaha team of of movie star, the movie star guys are going to have, you know, one, two – guys for each rider you know pouring over the electronics data whereas bradley and paul will have one guy between them and that's a situation that won't change and you know have to you have to imagine we'll still favor, favor the factory men
1: exactly i mean you see the same exactly the same thing in moto Two, where um the, the, the top teams have, uh, at least one dedicated electronics person, um, well, for the team and often also, uh, for the entire, uh, you know, per rider. Whereas you look lower down the order and it's basically the crew chief almost in, in, in his spare time. Whereas I know I've spoken to some of the data guys in, in Moto too. And they spend a lot of time going through those, uh, the the go through the sheets, the timesheets, or the or the, the spreadsheets and the data, uh, optimizing every single aspect of the electronics and and, and getting it all working. Yeah. So, uh, and, and I think we're going to see exactly the same thing in in MotoGP as uh, as next season progresses.
0: Yeah, it's something that you even see in World Superbikes. Um, I mean, at the start of this year, uh, I think David Salom was given um, given a Kawasaki that was obviously wasn't the level of, of Johnny Ray and Tom Sykes, but you know it was at a good level. Some people were saying that you know he should be challenging for top six. Um, but, you know, he doesn't have a dedicated full-time crew to work on that kind of electronic setup throughout the weekend, throughout the year. And, you know, you could see his performance, you know, suffered came up well short of, you know, teams that do have those dedicated engineers. Um, I thought it was interesting on Wednesday, Jorge was saying that he thinks... The electronics, the new electronics, are probably costing him about half a second a lap, um, on average. Um, and reading back what uh, what Cechanelli said on Wednesday, also he was saying that you know once they kind of, uh, once they get the, the package working up to its full potential, he expects the difference to be more like you know hundreds of a second, maybe one two tenths of a second. So yeah, we're, from reading what he said, you know, in the end, the difference won't be huge. You know. No, well if you.
1: He- if you look at the times that they were setting, I mean, uh, Marquez's best time on the Wednesday was a 3106, um, uh, which is just astonishing. I, uh, uh, I, I can't remember what the poll time was, but it was, it was pretty much around that sort of, uh, that same kind of level. So, uh, you know, clearly they're not being held that much. I mean, even Lorenzo, if Lorenzo's being held back sort of half a second by, by the electronics, uh, then by the time they dial it in, he'll be doing a 30, you know, thirty point nine or something like that. So um, that is uh, it is all very quick. Uh, obviously, a lot of that is down to the tyres because um, we well we have to talk about the tyres because there's sort of good and bad news, really, isn't there?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, again looking at the um, looking at the timesheets, you can see that Marquez's time I think was three tenths faster than Lorenzo's best best time from the race. Uh, that was the fastest lap in the race on Sunday. Um, you see, I think sixteen guys. Jack Miller in sixteenth was just over one second off Marquez's fastest time. So you know it's close. Um, yeah. But then that was tempered by the fact there were you know upwards in the region of twenty twenty five crashes throughout the two days. Um, you know, riders obviously still getting used to um still you know trying to fiddle with their their setup uh their bike balance uh, to accommodate uh the new the new tire the kind of the different grip characteristics that they offer and then also there was you know some a few people that kind of spoke out and said that there was you know one or two issues that the tires were having um it wasn't just a case of trying to recalibrate your brain and setup it was to do with well to do with the tires themselves
1: yeah it, it, exactly i mean uh, it, it is very difficult to to, to pinpoint exactly where the where the problems were i mean clearly um uh the 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 balance of the bike is is changed because the 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 rear of the tire although the the rear michelin is fantastic Uh, everyone was saying it's a fantastic tire uh the front they were well a little bit less uh, a little bit less happy with uh it was still a good tire but the 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 well there were there were two problems one of them was that that you know they still had the 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 weight balance not quite right for the uh, uh to deal with the michelin front but the other one was it just let go quickly yeah, had plenty of grip, but actually, the the difference between grip and then suddenly letting go was was really really difficult to tell, and that was one thing which the front Bridgestone was have historically been very good with.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think Mark has said on Tuesday that uh, the front Bridgestone always always give you a little bit of a warning. You know, it gives you like a little, even if it was only like you know a tenth two tenths of a second, you were able to kind of understand. Okay, I need to position my body to to deal with with what's what's you know kind of coming up. Um, the Michelin's didn't do that. Uh, no warning at all from from you know different people we heard um and you know that led to you know a spate of, of those front end crashes
1: yeah yes exactly and uh i can't see that this is something which is an easy fix uh, uh, to be frank and also it's it's uh was it? um i think i think it was valentina rossi talked about the dna of the tires you know it, it it's the, the the dna of the tires is, is still the same um uh, it, 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 it they still behave in exactly the same way uh, as they did back in uh, well uh, back when they were first back when they were racing in in the period of the tire wars which is uh, you know, fantastic grip, but um, uh, but well, the the only warning you get that uh, the tyre the is going to let go is is when it suddenly starts hurting.
0: Yeah, um, so it was clear from speaking to a few people, well, it's more or less everyone, uh, the Michelin front requires a lot more straight, straight line braking. Um, the with the Bridgestone, you are able to break right the way into the corner, right into almost the uh, the apex, um, sometimes even mid corner with the brake still applied. Um, the Michelin isn't so much, doesn't allow you to do that so much. Um, you know, can you maybe expand on that a little bit, David?
1: Oh, well, uh, yeah. I mean, what was actually interesting, I think it was Andrea Iannone who was, uh, uh who made a, a good point about doing it sort of the other way around. Um, the, 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 the strength of the breach side. In fact, I think back in 2009, 2010, uh, I spoke to Christian Gabarini about uh, uh, about Casey Stoner, and he said that um, uh, Casey Stoner's strength with the Bridgestone was that he trusted the front unconditionally, and so he would basically, uh, you know, ha- hammer into the first corner uh, and slam on the brakes, um, uh, no or well, trusting that the front would grip because he would load it immediately, and then he could sort of like tip it in the Michelin seem to need a little bit more work they need to, they need to be warmed up a little bit more uh, they need to be uh, cosseted a little bit they needed to be uh, sort of uh, treated more and that means treated more gently certainly into the corner um that i think also means that um it requires a different riding style you can't trail brake because it, you don't have the support that that what well what they were talking about was the platform. What um, uh, Bradley Smith explained is, is the platform, which is basically, you know, a big fat chunk of rubber, um, uh, a very solid chunk of rubber that um, uh, helps grip the tire and uh, p- 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 sort of carries you through the, carries you through the corner. Um, it, it means you can trust it entirely and you can feel you get the feedback as you're trail breaking as you're as you're sort of gently squeezing the front brake uh, uh and uh, squeezing and then releasing the front brake through the corner uh, you can actually feel what the front's doing whereas with the michelins it's much more break straight into the corner and um uh, and release it before you actually or before you tip it in too much you're still trail breaking a little bit but a lot less yeah. but what what i found interesting from ianoni was that he said well, uh, uh, he was doing a lot more um uh, braking from the rear so he could actually use the rear tire because the rear has so much more grip he could use a lot more engine braking and actually rear uh, braking with the rear end uh, uh, to, to grip uh, to, to stop the bike that way so he could sort of trail brake with the rear and use engine braking through the corner uh, to achieve the same goal so it's it's clearly It's going to require an an adaptation of of Writing styles and and it's going to be interesting to see who can who can make those changes not big changes, but small changes exactly
0: Yeah Um, you know and it's it's going to be fascinating also because it's going to require, you know, the guys with natural ability, natural feel, um, you know, you, you kind of fancy the guys that have the most kind of feel for the front and even for the rear in the case of Iannone. Um, yeah. You know, whether they're able to to adapt to it quicker than, you know, other guys that have maybe been on the some tyres uh, longer. Yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, I, to, be, to be frank, I was uh, surprised at um – Mark Marquez being quickest in fact both Marquez and Pedrosa were both quick um uh on there whereas you you really think of the honda as a front end bike where you uh you know hammer on the brakes um let the let the rear come up and sort of you know pitch it around on the uh, on the front end um it's always been the strength of it and yet um, um even with a bit less support from the front air from from the front tire the the the, the honda is still appears to be quick
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, speaking to a few different people, um, just asking them to explain the kind of the main differences between the, the Bridgestone front and the Michelin. Um, I thought Alish Isbagro was quite interesting. He said uh, he crashed, I think, three times: twice on Tuesday, once on Wednesday. Um, each one with the front end. He said basically, like when you've got the you've got the the front brake on. Uh, you're planning it to the full, um, you know. There's a squish in the front tire, um, but then when you when you release the front brake, it's in a kind of unnatural position. It's not the same consistent contact patch that you would have with the Bridgestone. Yeah. Um, and he said that sometimes, obviously, gives you like that nervous feeling um, when you pitch it in, and and you know, without warning, uh, the front can go. Yeah. And it was it was quite interesting. Bradley Smith was saying that the, with the Bridgestone, the front contact patch is kind of. It's even, you know, if you imagine it's like a rectangle. Um, he said with the Michelin, when you're, when you're applying the, the brakes heavily, it's kind of more like a triangle. Um, and depending on the type of corner, depending on how much brake you're applying, um, that triangle could be more, you know, have steeper edges. Um, and that is when he said the feeling is less and you need to be a lot more careful pitching in.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it's clear, but well, as we say, it's a question of feeling. It's just a question of getting used to it. I mean, uh, a lot of these guys have spent... Uh, all of their time either since 2008 or 2009 on bridgestones uh and all of a sudden you've got a completely different uh, d- different feeling yeah. you do sort of suspect that the um the guys who came in more recently uh i mean like maverick Vinales, but then again maverick Vinales is proper um is, is a genuine talent a real talent. Um but you 've got to say that that the, the these guys are just a lot better, you know they''re, they're, they're or, or, or at more of an advantage because they don't have so much to forget before they learn the new stuff,
0: yeah exactly. you would say Maverick, you would say Jack Miller as well, um guys that have only spent one maybe two years on on the bridgestone rubber they 're definitely yeah. be an advantage they don't have so many bad habits to get rid of
1: exactly what i found really interesting was uh watching jack miller on the honda through on the on on the proper full factory honda um uh through um uh through to to, to uh, through to 13 the long left-hander yeah i really thought that um a couple of times because obviously you know new leathers everything's different he looks different i thought i was watching bradley smith for a while he looked so smooth through there uh and, and then i sort of Looked up and thought, oh, no, 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 the colours are all wrong, and yet he's still only sixteenth fastest. Uh, so, but then again, but perhaps that's just you know the fact that everything is so close that uh, it, it, it's hard to it's hard to draw too many conclusions. Yeah,
0: exactly. He said that um, consistency wise, he was really impressed. He was obviously using uh, Scott Redding's bike for the two thousand and fifteen bike uh, with Scott Redding's factory electronics rather than the open spec electronics he had been using throughout the year, um, which I think we can all uh safely say we were were less than uh satisfactory <laughs> uh, that's been no no
1: i think uh, generally the, uh, the the word which writers would uh, would use to describe them when you'd switched your recorder off was shit yeah, so yeah. um uh, that's
0: uh and that's putting it, it mildly
1: Yes. Yes. Exactly. Quite often there was a uh, uh, there was a, there was an adverb in front of that as well, a, a fairly obscene one. Yeah,
0: exactly. um, but another thing that you would have to imagine will suit Miller. You know, he's been on. He spent a year on on Pearl Electronics. These are probably going to be a bit of an improvement on that. Um,
1: yeah, because also it, it's worth pointing out that the 2016 electronics are, are different to the open electronics from 2015. They're based on a different system. They're, they're a so called talk based system which manages uh engine torque rather than just you know shutting the, shutting throttles and cutting um uh, and cutting out um uh, ignition um, which is a much much slower, more uh, more reactive way of of, of managing engines uh, or, or managing engine performance. This is much more about uh, the, the, the new system. It's much more about just giving a rider a, a, a much better feel of uh, you know the amount of talk he expects to have in a in a corner. And so even when uh, Miller actually gets onto the 2016 electronics, they're going to be a, they're going to be a step forward for him.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm really excited to see how he goes. Um, I think. I think there were some fantastic shots um, through the test of him getting it sideways, coming out of turn eight in that fast left, which precedes the, the tight hairpin, the two rights. Uh, you know, fantastic, you know, kind of two-wheel drift coming through those corners. Um, and I think uh, there was a video on Twitter. I saw Carl Crutchlow responded to the video saying, like, you know, in terms of sheer talent, what he saw this year with Miller, he expects him to be challenging top 10, top 8 um, in two thousand and sixteen, which you know is 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 a realistic a realistic target
1: yeah it's it 's going to be really interesting i mean the, clearly the uh mark vds is a is a really solid outfit and he 's got he 's got christian gaberini with him so uh, uh, he has everything uh, at his fingertips uh to be able to actually achieve uh he 's obviously he 's been um assisted by Alberto Pugge now which is um uh, a big uh a big difference because he 's you know Basically, kicking his ass and telling him to uh, to to actually put in the put in the hard work. We actually saw it one morning. We saw him uh, um, as we were on our way in. We saw him um, uh, out cycling. I, I don't know who who he was with, but uh, it was clear he was suffering. So he was doing uh, he was he was doing the work. That
0: was for sure. Exactly. I'm sure if uh, if Alberto Puig was on the under, other end of my phone telling me to get out of bed, I would, <laughs> I would be jumping straight out. <laughs> Wouldn't want to get in that man's bad side. Uh, no. Yeah. No. But, well, it was interesting. We, we kind of said that um, obviously these tires are going to take, uh, the front tire in particular is going to take a lot of adaption. People are going to have to adapt their setup around it. But we also had one or two riders that were saying there's one or two issues with, uh, with, with certain, certain characteristics of the tires. Uh, Danny Pedrosa, for one, um, on Wednesday, he was saying it was, it was quite interesting whenever the temperatures went up on Wednesday afternoon um, and riders went for the, the harder setup of the, or sorry, the harder compound of the two that were available to them. Uh, then, they found some, then they found some problems.
1: Uh, yeah exactly there were a few uh, i mean um uh, i believe that michelin basically bought two compounds with them they they uh i think the soft and the medium which is basically the same sort of um uh the, the same compounds which they bought which Bridgestone bought or well the same level of compound if you like because obviously you know michelin have use totally different compounds but um uh the the temperatures were such that uh the the, the soft worked fine but the, the the hard compound was a little bit tricky and that's again that's just a, a matter of a, a question of um uh michelin needing to to gather the data and and, and to get them work
0: yeah, yeah. It was um, both Honda riders were saying that um, I think they tested the Michelin's in, and tested the Mizano over the summer, then in Aragon after the race in Aragon, and then here. And they Marquez said he found the feel of the tires was not consistent. Um, you know, the different surface, the different temperatures. He said he, they need to find compounds which are more predictable in all types of conditions and all types of surfaces
1: yeah I, I remember we spoke to Piero Taramasa who's basically the uh, the, the head of Michelin's MotoGP project um, at uh, Bruneau and he was talking about compounds and they were uh, he said basically they expected to be able to do the entire year with maybe four or five different compounds and uh, some of the when I mentioned this to some of the Bridgestone guys they were very surprised they expected that that would. they didn't expect that to be anywhere near enough uh, just because of the Uh, you know the, the, the asphalt at every circuit is different. Uh, you go there and the, the, the climatic conditions are very different. Um, the, 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 the amount of heat the track absorbs differs enormously. The abrasiveness of the, uh, of the surface is, uh, is, is different. So the amount that it actually wears, uh, it, the, the tires actually wear different. Uh, it can be very cold in the mornings in some places and it can be very hot and in, in, in different places. Um, there's just so many different differences that, uh, uh, that there are between the tracks, that that having just five compounds could be a little bit um, uh, optimistic.
0: Yeah, I think there were one or two kind of alternative um, compounds available to certain riders. I know at the end of Wednesday, Cal Crutchlow was trying out a special tire that Michelin, you know, had asked him to test. Um, he crashed. Fast speed uh, on the ex- or, sorry, on the entry to turn one. Um, just as he kind of first pitched into the corner, he he fell. Uh, it was quite a strange crash, and it's safe to say that he wasn't so impressed with uh, with that tire. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so still there's obviously some experimentation going on um, and, you know, they're, they're still trying to work, work it out themselves, like what the best way is to, to go forward. Um, but I think it's worth saying also that um, in terms of consistency, I spoke to one or two of the, of the guys. Um, Scott Redden said that um, he did a race run, I think, on Wednesday, um, his fastest time sorry, his slower, uh, he basically put 27 laps together and he said um, the lap time at the end of the 27 laps was about 0.8, 0.9 seconds slower than uh, than when he first started. So, you know, I think um, in terms of, um, of consistency, uh, if you look at the race times from Sunday, um, I think Lorenzo, you know, suffered about a one-second dip from his fastest to slowest time. So that's you know, that's not yeah, too bad. exactly.
1: That is that's pretty much where you would expect uh, uh, you know a, a bridge time to be uh, at the end of a at the end of a long race. I mean, what, what mm-hmm. I did see from uh, from the timesheets is that. Um, uh, they were going out, the riders were going out for a lot of, you know, short runs, three, four, five laps, and that's it. No one was really putting a run together. But then with, with so yeah. many big changes, that's exactly what you would expect it to do. So it's, it's, it's it really is very very difficult to actually start drawing too many conclusions uh from it yeah exactly exactly uh, was there was yes. there anyone that really impressed you uh, uh at the test was there anyone that really surprised uh, surprised you with where they where they finished
0: um well i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily say that this was a surprise but um i was you know very, very impressed by Maverick Vinales. I think we're all fans of yeah of Maverick. Um, the fact that he was second, um, he just written you know listening to his comments afterwards as well. Um, he said that really he didn't have to adapt his style at all um, for the new rubber, um, which again you know is a guy that has come from straight from um, Moto three into Moto two, straight from Moto two into Moto GP, and then you know he's kind of, he's used to dealing with these kind of big changes. Um, he's been doing it for the last couple of years of his career. Um, he said that I think basically he just had to alter his style slightly through turn three, uh, you know, the fast left. Um, but other than that, he, he found it to be quite, quite, quite similar. He didn't really have to adjust too much. Um, and I was just quite impressed with Maverick, you know, um, he was kind of saying about where his bike needs to improve next year. And obviously throughout the year, um, both Maverick and Alish have talked about the need for more power. Always losing out in the straights, um, and it's been their big des- uh, this big disadvantage. Um, but Maverick was also kind of, you know, it's a clear kind of direction that he wants the bike to yeah. go in. Um, you know, he's he's very, you know, he's pinpointed the the you know the areas that, that they really need to work on. Uh, he was saying that the bike needs to be more stable in, under heavy, heavy braking. Because um, I think we could see this year that Mavericks, you know, his starts haven't been the best. Um, you know, early on in the race, he's not, you know, he's not up to speed very, very quickly. And he kind of often finds himself, you know, behind... A big group, he has the the, the pace to get through that. Um, But obviously because the speed of the Suzuki is such, um, he needs more front-end stability. And he was kind of talking about that on Wednesday evening. He was saying that the direction they need um, is better heavy breaking um, ability and I thought that you know it's just for a guy who's 20 years old you know several times I've been impressed by him but you know for a guy to have this kind of technical understanding um, and authority really when he speaks um, you know you kind of imagine him having that authority uh, with race engineers as well giving them a clear direction.
1: Yeah exactly I mean he just whenever he speaks he exudes a sort of a sense of calm uh, the exactly what you would expect from a for, from a champion from, from a really really fast guy um, obviously yeah. the other the other thing that both um, uh, Maverick and we were talking about was um the seamless gearbox because the seamless gearbox i mean you talked about uh, the suzuki's getting poor starts basically they're just getting hammered in uh, off the line and into the first corner because they they can't get uh the kind of acceleration um that you get with a, that a seamless gearbox gives you um it looks well so far they're saying that or suzuki is saying that the seamless gearbox should come at the sepang test in february next year um if they do not bring a seamless gearbox to that test, then I think there could be a little bit of trouble in that team because it's clear that the Suzuki is a fantastic handling bike and it has a lot of really big positives, but they need to make a couple of steps to to, to turn it into well to turn it into into a truly competitive motorcycle.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think um, it was after Bruno that Maverick said that he thinks a little bit of extra uh, horsepower and the seamless is probably going to be worth. Half a second, six tenths of a second. Yeah, exactly, that. and that's
1: um, that, that, that's yeah. the difference between you know finishing just inside the top ten and uh, uh, challenging for the well, basically getting close to the podium. And if there's if you there is it. one rider that you would uh, you would bank on um, uh, on actually getting close to the podium, it would definitely be Maverick uh, Maverick Vinales next year if if he has the tools at his, at his um, disposal.
0: Absolutely. What about you, David? Was there anyone in particular that stood out?
1: Uh, the, the, I mean, uh, just purely on the timesheets, the fact that uh, uh, Loris Baz on a GP fourteen point two got up so far—that was uh, that was really really impressive. Um, uh, the fact that the two Hondas. I mean, obviously the Suzuki's on, uh, obviously Maverick. The, the fact that two Hondas were quick was uh, a little bit ominous. The the most interesting thing for me, I think uh, in the Honda story was uh, they talk about their new engine. Um, They have a new engine, but they don't know whether it's any better than the, than the one uh, from last year, which, Caused them huge problems in acceleration. Uh, they were spinning up the rear all the time. Uh, they couldn't accelerate. You, act, I mean, you saw it during the race at um, at Valencia that they were just getting no grip and no drive out of the final corner. Um, uh, if the new engine is smoother, then it will be. Uh, it will make a big difference. Um, but we, it was hard for them to tell because of the. Uh, they were also working with new electronics. So if if the power delivery was a bit inconsistent, it was hard to say whether it was just that the electronics weren't set up properly, or the, um, uh, or or the engine was uh, you know still too aggressive. So we shall have to yeah, see. Exactly. But like I say, Loris Baz on the GP fourteen point two to be three quarters of a second off uh, off the time of Marquez really I, I mean Baz did I think did really uh, did really well this year uh, his sort of performance went a little bit unnoticed because of uh uh well, you know the open class. No one paid much attention to the open class, but uh, he came very close to. I mean, he gave Hector Barber, who's got a lot of experience in the class, um, uh, a hard time, and uh, I, I think he could be a bit of a surprise, uh, a bit of a surprise package next year. Yeah,
0: he should be interesting yeah. for sure. Yeah, um, it was you, you. You kind of touched upon Honda's engine. Um, generally, Marquez and Pedrosa said that it was difficult to judge it, but when they were. There was little brief glances into into what it might be like. Um, you know, I think Marquez said that it's you know it's decent, but he said there's some negative points, and he also said it's still a little bit aggressive. Yeah, um, and you know that kind of makes you think. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know whether they, whether that is has the alarm bells ringing with them um, because we we know with you know the 2015 RCV, um, you know the the explosive one lap pace was never an issue. Uh, well, for Marquez anyway. Um, it was the, the kind of consistency the rideability of it um, and, and you know that's something that they've they've, they've asked engineers for um, and it's just going to be interesting to see whether Honda have listened
1: yeah I, th- I think we'll get a much better idea of that um, well sorry at the end of uh, the end of November they have another test at, uh, at Jerez uh, Suzuki will be there GK will be there Honda will be there uh, again it's going to be done in cool conditions which was when the, the Honda really struggled with grip um, really struggled with the bike so um or really struggle with the, with the aggressive nature of the engine because the engine was you know producing more power uh so we should have a much better a clearer idea honda's technicians will have had a chance to um look at the data and sort the engine uh, sort the electronics out a little bit so we should you know at that test we should get a much better a much clearer idea of where they are with the uh, with the engine whether the engine whether they need to work on the engine or not uh, but we yeah. won't know for sure until they turn up at uh, at Sepang next year, either with or without a new engine.
0: Yeah, that'll be definitely very interesting yeah. to see. Uh, another interesting thing was on Wednesday, I think around lunchtime, we were on maybe our fourth or fifth espresso of the day, trying to trying to you know breathe some lives into ourselves after you know a long trying season. Yeah, and um, yeah, it was. We heard some interesting rumours about um, a potential ex-champion. Um, Switching, switching teams.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that was a very interesting story. I mean, I'd seen it, I'd seen it developing and, and, and had not been taking much. Uh, uh, notice of it because every time I said something about um, uh, Casey Stoner uh, making a return that he would about uh, about 10 minutes later he'd proved me wrong by doing the opposite of what I just said so um, uh, but credible very very credible rumours came out that Casey Stoner will be switching to Ducati uh, as a test rider Um, there is a chance he may do some wild cards uh, but certainly his main focus first of all will be uh, as a test rider, and you've got to say that that's an absolutely fantastic uh, move by uh, by Ducati.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for a st- stunning move. I mean, you know, you couldn't really hope to have um, you know a, a better test rider at your disposal. Um, also, a guy you know that is so so fast, um, you know, from the off. Um, I think a, a fantastic person to have to to really test the limit uh, of of the front tire you know something that um something that's going to be really really important for next year yeah
1: it, absolutely i mean the, the the most interesting reactions and the, i mean i think the reason why you have to take it very very um uh, very very seriously was because the uh, well first of all um uh, Paolo Ciabatti, uh, uh, ducati's um uh, head of racing ba- uh, basically came up or the head of their MotoGP gp team uh, came up and told us um that, well, he issued the most fantastic denial or, well, the, the most fantastic denial, which was actually an admit, uh, admitting that it was happening by saying, you know, uh, well, we can't comment. He's still under contract to Honda uh, and um it would be fantastic if we had an opportunity in the future to be able to work together, Um <laughs> which was basically said, yeah, 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 yeah. it's done. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um,
0: then I did. I did sorry I did speak to someone at Ducati who said that um Casey's made it clear that he doesn't want a full time racing return but a testing role um presumably with more tests than he has done with Honda this year yeah um is, is kind of what has what has piqued his interest
1: yeah i mean it it seems to me that uh Casey really wanted to uh, to you know to do some testing but um I can't see him i still can't see him coming back full time i can uh, i mean you'd you'd have to have money on him um coming maybe doing a wild card at philip island if he was if he was ever going to do a wild card but um uh he's clearly i mean you just see his his posts on 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 social media on his on his instagram and twitter account of, of how much he is enjoying his time with his um, uh, with his daughter and actually watching his daughter grow up to think that um, uh, he's not going to leave that behind and do uh, an, another full 18 race season. Um, the the, the most in, uh, well, interesting thing to me is the, the fact that he's decided to leave Honda. Um, uh, obviously there was, uh, well, he only really got the one test with Honda, which clearly wasn't very much. And uh, I, I think he'll be doing a lot lot more riding uh, with you for for Ducati next year and uh, yeah I, I think that's that's definitely important to him and also there was a certain amount of friction between uh with Honda Stoner didn't really appreciate the way that they that they basically just ignored his uh ignored his input he told them that the that the engine was too aggressive and uh they well they didn't didn't do um uh, didn't do anything with that feedback, but, um, uh, yeah. did Neil, I, th- I think there was also some, uh, well, a certain amount of, uh, well, should we say difference between, uh, Mark Marcus and Casey Stoner?
0: Well, yeah, I think it was uh, at some point earlier in the year, I'm struggling to to remember exactly when it was, but uh, there was an interview uh, in the same week between, well, someone had interviewed Casey and he was, um, I think he was maybe being a bit critical of Marquez's, uh, the crashes that he had been having in um, in, uh, Mugello and in Catalonia. And uh, then Mark came back with another little snipe. Um, you know, and this is just me speculating here, but um, there seemed to be a little bit of, of friction there. Um, I think it's also safe to say that Casey wasn't happy at HRC, um, you know, kind of turning them down um, to, to replace Pedroza uh, in Texas and in Argentina. Um, and then you know, from from a few things I've read, it, it seems like he was maybe not so impressed with how they handled, um, you know, the kind of machine issue that he had—the the, the stuck throttle in um, in Suzuka during the eight hours.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it was as you say, there was there was a lot of things, especially the. the, the the things that he said on twitter basically um of, uh, Arge- at austin and argentina that to me was the biggest sign that there was something seriously wrong with that relationship and um uh, yeah from from then on it was clear that uh, it it was not going to be it was not going to last forever
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But just you know, fantastic news. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think there's there's a, there's a real racing fan out there that that um, isn't excited by the prospect of Casey, even even as a test rider. You know, just to just to kind of hear what his feedback would be, um, and the, you know, the, even if it is a very small possibility, you know, the chance of him lining up in the grid, even if it is just for a single race, it, you know, would. Is making my mouth water already? Yeah, let's just say
1: exactly. I I think also uh, what's also important to say is is the reason that he's going to Ducati because he left he left Ducati because they you know they basically were ignoring his feedback. Um, the changes which, uh, Gigi Delinia has made in the organization, which to me are the most important thing and the biggest step forward for, uh, uh, for the company, um, far bigger than the, than the technical changes that I think is, is what convinced him most of all to come back to, uh, uh, to Ducati because he, you know, he knows that his input is going to be taken seriously.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and anyone that's spoken, or sorry, anyone that's worked with uh, Gigi in the past, you know, can't you know can't speak highly enough for the man.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you you see, you know, Eugene Laverty, you, you speak to him now, and Eugene Laverty is absolutely, uh, um, even last year when he was on a Honda, he would still um, uh, be full of praise for for Gigi. So uh, clearly he's, um, uh, I think he is, uh, he can be a little bit difficult to work with if things are not going um, as he expects you to be. Uh, what was he is it, or if things are See not Carl going
0: crutchlow last year
1: yeah ex- yes yeah exactly yeah. exactly i don't think uh, i don't think crutchlow felt um uh that he was uh as supported by by delinia as um uh, as he might have been but um uh, you know the, the man knows how to organize a race department and how to produce some, or, on how to encourage people to produce fantastic racing motorcycles there's no no question about that
0: absolutely yeah um, okay. So shall we shall we perhaps go on to some some questions? Um, we, we posed the question on Twitter earlier. We asked uh, some of you guys to get in touch um, with some questions for us. Um, so we're going to basically answer a few of those questions now. Uh, the first of which is from Calicho Errico I hope I've said that right. Um, and this question is for you, David. It says, how should Yamaha deal with the tension between Valentino and Jorge in the team? Uh, surely it's beyond a healthy rivalry now.
1: Uh, that is a really good question. And all I can say is I'm really glad that it, that, that it's not me who actually has to deal with it. Lynn Jarvis had a fantastic answer to this, um, with, uh, uh, when he was asked it at, um, uh, Valencia, which was basically gin and tonic, which, uh, seems, seemed like a good idea. Um, the, I mean, uh, to an extent, yes, there is an incredible, there's going to be an incredible amount of, of tension in the team, uh, but they are both, Multiple world champions. They're both very experienced, uh, uh, motorcycle racers. They know, they know what their job is. Um, it's, yeah, it's going to be difficult, but they both understand they'll, they will, they will get on with their job. Uh, they both want to be champion in 2016. There will be a certain amount of sniping, but uh, also perhaps once, um, uh, they will turn their gaze on the common enemy, which is Mark Marquez.
0: Exactly. I think it would be a different question if it was Valentino in a team with Marc Marquez. I think then you would probably have some 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 serious issues. Um, but in terms of Valentino, Lorenzo it never really went beyond, you know, sniping and, you know, the occasional little bit of mind, mind trickery, let's say, you know, uh, Valentino trying to wind Jorge up, um, you know, it never kind of came to... You know, I I guess there was a bit of sniping after Malaysia um, before the race in Valencia, even some of the things that Jorge was saying after the test. um, He was saying that uh, Valentino was acting like a man, you know, in the last three weeks he's been acting like a man who felt that 2015 was his last title chance and, you know, um, he, he... perhaps believes that. Um, so, yeah, so I, I I, think, you know, as you say, I think, you know, give them a month or two away from the from racetracks, and they'll cool off. Um, I think, I don't think it'll be that much of an issue next year, to be honest.
1: No, no, I mean, they're never going to be best friends, but, uh, uh, well, they were never going to be best friends anyway, so it's it's not going to be that much, uh, that much of a difference. It'll be, uh, um, uh, it's just not going to be an awful lot of fun going to uh, uh, sort of publicity events with the two of them. So... Uh, yeah that's uh that's just the way it is
0: yeah yeah exactly i mean uh what you were saying there about jorge and valentino you know competitive multiple world champions in the same team not getting on shocker you know like i mean <laughs> this is nothing this is nothing new uh you look back at any any kind of team with uh with two champions in it uh be it you know reigning kaczynski or Rainian lawson um, you, you know they they never get on. Um, there's never going to be a relationship there, other than perhaps you know working um, on 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 the the development of, bike, uh, of bikes. And of course, Valentino and Jorge have been in a situation before. Um, I think I think they know how to deal with it.
1: Yeah, exactly. In, in, in fact, when you were going through that, I was just thinking about uh, uh, some of. The, I wrote a few stories for uh, for a Belgian magazine a couple of years ago about about teammate rivalries. And you go back and there's um, uh, you know Phil Reed and Bill Ivy, Phil Reed. And uh, Giacomo Agostini. Uh, I think Agostini and Halewood were in the same team at some point. Um, yep, sixty-five. Yeah. Well, there you go. This is this is you know really there is nothing new. It's um, uh, it's what happens when uh, when a, a strong factory uh, manages manages to sign up the the two best or, or two of the very best uh, riders of their generation. Mm-hmm. Um, right, on to the next question from uh, Mohamed Awad um, uh, who I, I, I hope I, I pronounce his name correctly. He says, what are your thoughts on um, Antonelli, Oliveira and Rince What should their next move be and why? Uh,
0: yeah, it's a good question. Um, I guess we'll start off with, with Nico Antonelli. Um, I think before 2015 he was really in some ways looking at his last chance in Grand Prix. Um, he had had a few years where it was just crash prone. There was speed there. He had shown speed in testing. I remember he Always, particularly went well in testing at Valencia, uh, but there was something with the KTM last year. He just could not get his head around consistency. Um, you know and he kind of became one of those sort of like jokey figures that people laughed at oh you know Antonelli's crashed again this year I've been impressed with him um, you know he's uh, he's been quite solid I think um, you know he was uh, you know there's some fantastic performances there he won a few races um, and really as soon as he won that race which I think was his first podium that was in Brno um, you know since then he really he kind of really took off and I think the final, the final corner there at Valencia maybe wasn't his finest moment um, <laughs> but I think uh, I think Antonelli can be a guy who can realistically have uh, title ambitions next year?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, completely agree. Uh, and again, also, I think it's a a, a real demonstration of uh, the, the 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 change which can come over a rider once they get their first real success under the belt. Um, yeah. uh, you know, pole and win it just changes riders it just gives them the confidence to actually believe in themselves to go out and actually do things and like you say he was a lot more consistent and um didn't crash anywhere near as much as he as he used to and yeah I, I agree you've got to you've got to sort of put him in the uh, uh put him in the uh, up there in the list of, of, of championship candidates for next year
0: yeah, exactly. And, you know, he's quite an assured little guy. His, his, his English is actually at a really good level. Yeah. I think early, earlier in the year, Rossi joked that uh, his, his English was better than Iannone. Um And I don't think uh, Antonelli is still quite young. Iannone thinks in his mid-twenties. Um, you know, so, yeah, I think he's got, you know, he's got something upstairs there as well. You know, he, he's kind of, um, yeah, I think, I think it should be interesting to see what he, he'll do next year. Um, as for Mr. Oliveira, well, I think um, you know, I think the, the, the final half of 2015 proved, well, we all sort of knew that Oliveira on a really good bike would be a championship contender. Um, and it, it wasn't just his results, it was the way he was kind of conducting himself in the final five, six races that really impressed me. It was just, uh, it was kind of a, an air of inevitability inevitability about all of those races. Yeah, exactly. Um,
1: exactly. He 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 dominated those last races in the same way that the Danny Kent dominated the first half of the season. So it was it was a fantastic I mean it ended up as just as a fantastic really evenly matched battle. It, it was a joy to watch.
0: Yeah, exactly. And you know the yeah, I think in Malaysia in Valencia he would never you know if he was in a group of 7 8 riders it was very rare to see him go below you know, third place. He yeah. was always. He had just a knack of staying in the front of two or three positions. He maybe wouldn't go into the final lap first, but you always knew that he was. You know, if there's one man in that class that could put a last lap together, it was it was Oliveira. So that's going to be a fascinating battle next year. Him and Kent lining up in alongside each other in the uh, the leopard uh, backed Kiefer team, um, w- which will be using Kalex chassis. Um, you know, I think Kent showed you know kind of his pure natural talent in in the test in harass at the end of last week. Yeah. Uh, I think he his times were really really fast indeed. And Oliveira, I think was maybe about a second slower. Um but you know he's a he's a clever guy. He speaks several languages perfectly. You know, he's uh studied dentistry I think before. You know, he's a really he's a kind of thinking man's rider. Um I can see him having a good, strong debut season in Moto2 next
1: year. Yeah, I mean, uh, Oliveira, I'm really looking forward to Moto2 uh, next year because of the, the the various mixtures. And I think, as you say, Oliveira was a really intelligent rider. Um uh, i mean daddy kent is a smart kid as well uh but he's much more of an ero- uh, of, a, of a an emotional rider if you see what i mean he's much more even though he you know he's sort of you talk to him and he's very calm very cool all the rest of it but um, underneath all of that uh, the, there's lots of uh, emotions going on Oliveira is much more is he, has a real sense of inner calm you know nothing seems to perturb him um he's very very uh, concentrated he's just i mean he really has been a fantastic rider i think uh, he's going to be again in the right structure next year um uh, he's going to have the right environment around him he's going to have the right people around him uh, he's got every he's got every reason to to succeed and i I mean, I don't think he's going to do as well as Danny Kent next year, just because it, he will be a true rookie. Whereas, you know, Kent is going back to Moto2. He understands Moto2. Um, he doesn't have as much to learn in that, uh, in that year, but um, he's still going to be, he's still going to be impressive. And I think, especially in the second half of next year, uh, it, it's going to be something, he's going to be something to look forward to.
0: Exactly. Exactly. A man who went toe to toe with Maverick Vinales in the Spanish championship, no less. So, you know, we know that the, 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 the talent and the ability is certainly there. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and then the final rider that Mohammed was asking about was um, was Alex Alex Rins. Um, you know, I, I don't really think there's a lot to say about Alex. I think he's probably going into next year as the as my favorite for Moto Two anyway for the for the championship. Yeah. Uh, I think I think Lowe's and Zarko will be very very strong indeed. But if I had to put money, I would say Rins at the moment, um, and I would say. Um, Beyond um, if we're if we're kind of looking at riders that could make that jump to become an alien, let's say, I think you know Anone and Vinales have both shown this year that they could potentially take another step and get closer to that kind of group of, of four riders. Um, and you know looking at the smaller classes, I would say Rins at the moment is probably the most prominent name that I would I could I could foresee uh, becoming one of that elite group in MotoGP in the future
1: yeah i mean to to me i think the biggest threat to alex rinse next year is going to be contract negotiations because everyone wants him uh honda are known to be interested in him Uh, yamaha are interested in him uh you've got to think that ducati will want a piece of him if he's uh if he's available uh Perhaps even, uh, perhaps even Suzuki, uh, alongside Maverick Vinales, because that would be a fantastic, uh, a fantastic pairing. So, mm. um, um, uh, yeah, he will have to make sure he doesn't get distracted by all of that in the middle of the season, especially if he's leading the championship. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, really, a, a, a Dutch, uh, a, a Dutch journalist friend of mine called Jano van Os, um, uh, tipped me to him, uh, tipped me off about Alex Rince. I think, maybe six seven years ago something like that said look out for this kid he's fast um, uh, because at the time he was um, in the Spanish Championship he was just starting in the Spanish Championship and he was beating, um, uh, beating um, Alex Marquez uh and well, yeah, I mean look what he did in Moto two this year. He completely outclassed Alex Marquez all season. Um yeah. and uh really he he really is he he's a little bit special, so he's going to be uh he's definitely going to be one to watch, especially once he gets up to Mo GP. He just has to make the right choice and get into the right team.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, there's obviously similarities with Vinales in that he replaced Maverick in uh, Cedo Ponce's Moto2 outfit. Yeah. Um, but, but there were several performances this year, especially at the start of the year, um, which, which kind of stood out for me about Rince. He, you know, I think in the first four or five races, he was pretty much the fastest guy at the end of each of those races. Um, which you th- when you think like that's coming up, you know, there's so much to adapt to there. Yeah. Um, th- that's impressive. And that was what Vinales was so great at in, um, in Moto2 last year. Um, So, yeah, so I think Rin's definitely a star of the future and potential uh, Moto2 world champion in 2016. Um, Okay, cool. So I have another another question here for you, David. This is from Nicole MotoGP. Uh, Thank you for your question. And that is, um, in 2016, there will only be one rookie in the MotoGP class. What are your thoughts on this?
1: Um, That, to be frank, I'm not surprised. Um, I'm surprised there are any rookies at all, uh, to be perfectly honest. Because the, well, the contract situation is locked up for, for, for 2016 because all of the factory riders have, uh, are, are in the middle of their two year deals. Um, the, all of the action is going to happen at the, well, during 2016 looking towards the 2017 season when there all of all of the factory seats become available there's lots of things that could happen uh, will valentino rossi sign on for another year or not uh, will danny pedroso want to race for another year or not will will honda keep him for another year will jorge go, go to ducati um there is there are so many possible permutations that um that to me is going to be i think we're going to see a lot of sort of movement in the uh, uh, in the rider uh, uh, in the rider market here for for 2017, and that's going to create a lot more opportunities for for rookies.
0: Exactly. We also saw, you know, several riders that that potentially had a chance to step up to the to the MotoGP class. Guys like Danny Kent, uh, Johan Zarco, uh, even Sam Lowes, I think, had the opportunity to do so. Um, each of them decided uh, to go for a kind of um, well, I don't know. Uh, each of the reasons were it di- was different, but um, in the case of of Kent and, and Zarco, um, they kind of came to the conclusion that what they had at that time, as in for Kent, the, the Kiefer Racing Team, and for Zarko, the, the IO squad, you know, they had a good thing going. And, you know, they thought, why, you know, why kind of throw that away um, for a team in MotoGP that's maybe not going to be so competitive, um, which I think, you know, was, was kind of fair reasoning on their part. And, you know, in the case of Lowe's, he just wanted to, he wanted to stay and have a, have a real shot at the, two, um, at the Moto2 World Championship in 2016.
1: Yeah, I mean, those are both very, really good reasons. I mean, there is no... Better way than to, to to sink your career than to go up to a uh, go up to MoGP early with a team which is just not capable of. Uh, providing a, a truly competitive motorcycle for you. So, um, also Alex Rince, I know that uh, there was interest from Yamaha from uh, uh, for, for for Alex Rins. Uh, I think uh, Tech Three were looking at Alex Rins for a long while, but Rince basically said, "No, I want two years in uh, two years in Moto Two because I want to be a champion, and, and then I'll step up," which uh, shows uh, again maturity. Uh, I think there was uh, there was definitely an opportunity if, they, if uh, by stepping up because you've got less to learn. Um, everybody's on the Michelins, uh, so you have a, an opportunity to, uh, be on a, a, an even footing. You know, you're not, you're not trying to catch up with years and years of experience on the, uh, on the Bridgestones. Um, new electronics, that, that makes a difference as well. So, yeah, uh, there was, there were sort of reasons to do it, but I think the, the, the biggest thing is just the rider market. The rider market is just, uh, uh it's just not there the rides weren't there and so it's better to stay where you are for a for another year and wait for the big shake-up that we expect in 2017
0: absolutely can't argue with that
1: yep uh right last question from uh uh, zara daniela worst traffic jam of the season and i mean an actual one not the moto three (laughs) qualifying
0: (laughs) <laughs> yes, nice, uh, uh, yeah. Well, I, I didn't go to, to all the races this year, uh, but I think from from memory, uh, Mugello was probably the worst one. Um, I think we were caught in the traffic for I don't know ten fifteen minutes outside the circuit, which was nowhere near as bad as what I've heard it's like, or what I've heard it's been like in previous years.
1: Uh, yeah, well, a uh, a friend of ours managed to get himself stuck in traffic. Uh, they made the wrong decision. Came on the motorway. Um, uh, from Florence I think up to uh, up to Mugello and uh, left at 7 o'clock in the morning and um, uh, got in just in time for the start of the Moto3 race Mugello is uh, Mugello is notorious I think the um, uh, uh, Valencia this year was pretty bad as well I know I've been stuck in traffic a couple of years ago probably um, um, uh, getting into Valencia it took me maybe two and a half hours instead of the 40 minutes that it was uh, that it did normally Normally, uh, this year, fortunately, where we were staying, I found a a, a sneaky back way, which I will not be disclosing. Um, which meant we got in there in a well. It took us about ten minutes, nor longer than normal, uh, uh, Neil, something like that.
0: Yeah, exactly. With Colin McRae, i.e., dividend behind the wheel.
1: <laughs> a very, very yeah. slow Colin McRae. <laughs> <laughs> so uh but uh actually coming out of um uh coming out of Magello is um is even worse than uh, than going in it's one of the things which is always entertaining to do when you are um where as we basically after the race we go around talk to riders and then go back to the press room and, and sit there and type uh, type all our stories up and uh, watch people complaining about the traffic on twitter basically for a little bit of light entertainment uh because it takes hours and hours and hours i know personally i know people have missed their flights uh because they um left the track thinking they could get to bologna in time for a uh uh, for a flight and um and and failing miserably uh i think there was a story about uh about uh eugene laverty uh also um uh being forced to turn around uh, leaving the traffic one uh one way and 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 taking hours and hours to get where they were going to
0: exactly yeah. And if there is one track that, uh, you know, that is worthy of your time to kind of stick around after the race and just kind of take it all in, uh, it is Mugello. I think uh, probably the most majestic racetrack uh, in the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah. absolutely. The uh, the it, It's the one which uh, uh, quite often the, the, the paddock is fullest because uh, everyone's sponsors want to... It, it's the track which everyone's sponsors want to go to because, let's face it, it's an easy sell. First of all, you go to Florence, then you go to... Um, uh, then you go to a motor gp race at, at, at a, in a spectacular setting and then you stay on in Tuscany for a week for a spot of well whatever it is golf food wine walking uh, cycling motorcycle riding um, there is there's about a billion reasons to uh, to 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 stay on
0: absolutely nice one okay david well thank you very much for your time i think that brings us uh, brings us to the end of this uh, this episode of the paddock pass podcast thank you uh, We'll be back again soon, um, I think, with a, with a, a general season overview. Um, so thanks again for your questions, and we'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. for listening to this episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast. If you enjoy the show and listen to it through iTunes, please leave us a rating and review. It greatly helps other MotoGP enthusiasts find the show. Also, be sure to follow us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast and Twitter at paddockpasspod. Thanks again, and see you next time. Fucking nice one.
1: Nice one. Nice one. Aye. Um that, uh, that
0: were real right fucking nice yeah, that were. Aye. That
1: were that right were real nice that were. Um